This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. It was about a month ago that we here, I mean, you may have heard about my next guest before then, but we had her on the show here. We introduced her to you because at that time, Lindsay Shepard was right smack in the middle of one of the most uncomfortable, uh, controversial, whatever you want to call it, things that I can remember on a university campus. Essentially, she had presented, she had shown a clip of a controversial professor in her class as a teaching assistant at Wilfrid Laurier University. That, we are told, led to a complaint, which led to a meeting with her professors, which led to her being reprimanded uh, and being called transphobic and a variety of other not-so-nice things, which, of course, led to an explosion of discussion about free speech on campus. Well, today, an interesting, I think the end, I think this is the end of the story, but maybe not, we'll see, but an interesting end today because Laurier President Deborah McClatchy said there was no wrongdoing on the part of Ms. Shepard in showing that clip. In other words, Lindsay Shepard, it seems anyway, has been totally vindicated for this by the university. Uh, She joins me now. Lindsay, thanks for doing this again today. Yeah, no worries. Uh, This must be a good day for you. This must be feeling pretty good to hear a complete and absolute vindication of what you did. Yeah, it is. It's good. I mean, there's still some questionable things about that statement, but overall, um, it, it really does clarify a lot of things. Had you been sitting on pins and needles waiting for this? I mean, is it a, a huge relief now or did it even matter to you at this point because of the outpouring from the public that whatever was going to happen was going to happen? Well, I mean, actually, this statement was totally unexpected to me. Um, So, I mean, the the report is confidential. And so I do give um, President McClatchy a lot of credit because she didn't have to release this statement. She didn't have to be um, transparent at all because it's a confidential report. I think she really just chose to do this, um, you know, to be more transparent. So um, I'm definitely happy about that. There's still a lot that we, we don't know and might never know. But it's definitely a good step. Would I be correct in guessing that this last month or month and a half has, uh, I mean, without overstating things, has changed your life a bit, uh, maybe more than a bit? Oh yeah, for sure, definitely. Um, yeah, and and I'm still, and I, I heard you talking earlier about whether or not this is the end, um, but it's actually not. Uh, They're going to be starting a task force, um, and so they're going to release the details about the composition of that task force probably next week, I think I read, and um, they're going to be working on how to protect freedom of expression on campus, and they're going to be releasing an open report in March. So we've still got, you know, a few more months of seeing how Laurier will deal with this. And I want to talk about that. I'm going to get to that in just a minute, though, because I think it's a pretty broad and it's an important piece of this. Um, did you have over the last number of weeks, before I get to that, the feedback that you got from people, was it more positive or more negative? Um, so general public and, you know, like comments on my Twitter, like overwhelmingly positive, um, which was like a huge boost in morale for me just to know that um, you know, I kind of have to use the language of, of Trump here, but like the silent majority, right, that, that was on my side. It's just really within Laurier University that I'm treated as um, an outsider and, and like a dangerous 
person and mean person. Still? And so when, yeah, oh yeah, and when the semester starts again in January, um, I expect not much will change. I mean, I've, um, since the statement was released, I've already seen a couple of social media posts by um, some Laurier students saying that the statement has vindicated a white supremacist, that's, that's me, uh, and it's throws LGBTQ students under the bus. And so, you know, it's, it's not over. The, the Rainbow Center, the on-campus LGBTQ group, I mean, they're not happy about the statement. I'm sure they're going to, to fight it. Anyone say anything to you personally, though, or is it all online? When you're walking around campus, does anyone come up and say anything? Um, you mean about the statement released today? No, 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 no. In, over the last month or so, as people have come to their own conclusions and taken sides in this, do you get anyone who actually will say anything to you, or is it just online stuff? Um, I've had two people come up to me in person on campus. Um, the rest either, you know, the, the overwhelming atmosphere is people don't make eye contact with me and don't look at me on campus, but then I go on social media and there's all sorts of mean stuff about me from, from my colleagues I'm talking about, from students at Laurier. And, and, and yet here's the thing that I find so interesting about this. I'm going to take a line out of the statement by uh, Ms. McClatchy today, the president of Laurier. Uh, and this is a quote from her when she's outlining what happened. There were numerous errors in judgment made in the handling of the meeting with Ms. Lindsay Shepard, the TA of the tutorial in question. In fact, the meeting never should have happened at all. No formal complaint nor informal concern relative to a Laurier policy was registered about the screening of the video. This was confirmed in the fact-finding report. Am I reading that correctly then to say that the entire basis for this whole thing was completely made up? Yeah, not, not so much as made up, but completely misinterpreted. Um, and that's why they're going to look into that um, gendered violence and sexual assault policy they have. Because, I mean, the root of this is that by me showing two sides of a debate related to transgender-neutral pronouns, that would be tantamount to transphobia. So that would be tantamount to having an irrational fear of trans people, which is obviously ludicrous. Um, so they're going to look into that policy. And I've been, um, there's just been some more articles released where Deb McClatchy has been talking to media. And so from what I gather... Um, a student in one of my classes had an informal conversation with a staff member of the Rainbow Center, and that staff member took it upon themselves without being asked to complain to Professor Rambucana, and then Rambucana and the other two people in the meeting took it upon themselves to uh, censor me. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Lindsay, you brought up, though, one really interesting thing a few minutes, well, a lot, number of interesting things, but one in particular, and that was the university uh, president is now exploring how we're going to handle free speech on campus. Um, what I find interesting about that is it doesn't seem to me that this is one of those things, you either have free speech or you don't have free speech. I'm trying to understand from her explanation how you're going to, how the university is going to parse what is allowed to be free speech or not, which seems to not be free speech. Yeah, it's, it's a very strange move, especially considering that if there's one place in, in a democratic society where every idea should be explored, it would be a university. So, you know, to, to have a task force that's going to tell a university what their purpose is, 
is very strange. Yeah, her, her words exactly, uh, just to read them. To that end, we have established the Task Force on Freedom of Expression to take input from our community, look at best practices beyond Laurier, and develop a clear, tangible set of practical, implementable guidelines that will bring clarity to this issue for our own classrooms and to have the potential to serve as best practices for others. Um, that is very confusing and very convoluted, and I don't exactly know how you have free speech if you're going to then put all kinds of limits or whatever else on it. So the, the reason I ask you this, I would like to believe that you and maybe some other people who have gone through something like this, something really clear comes out the other end. I'm not sure it's going to be clear. Right, yeah. And um, so uh, uh, in late November, myself and a couple other students dropped off uh, a Laurier Freedom of Expression Statement, which is modeled off of um, a policy that the University of Chicago has, but basically, in a nutshell, says that the possibility of being offended is not enough to shut down discussion of controversial ideas. And so a, a couple Laurier professors drafted a Laurier version of that statement. And so, you know, the best possible outcome, you know, for, for this group of us would be that um, President McClatchy adopts that statement. Um, which is maybe a possibility. Um, but yeah, otherwise I agree with you. I mean, um, we already have laws on hate speech. So what, what, what would be the point of the task force? I'm guessing too, that somewhere along the way, you've probably been offended by something somebody said on campus. So presumably their speech would be considered not allowed to be free speech under these guidelines. Like it's, it becomes so convoluted and so confusing if you start putting all kinds of asterisks and other parentheses on what is and isn't allowed to be said. Right, yeah, but I mean, a lot of people are watching this story closely, and hopefully they still will be um, in March when this open report is released. So, uh, you know, we there is the benefit of that in this situation is that I didn't keep it a secret, and I did um, record them and, and make this a public issue. So that is um, something helpful in the situation, that people will be paying attention um, to what Laurier does, and there will be lots of people analyzing um, whatever they choose to adopt. You mentioned the recording. I, I hope that most of the people listening have gone online and listened to the recording of the meeting. It's about 50 minutes, 45, 50 minutes. It's a long recording. It's available all over the place online, but there must have been numerous times in the past month where you w would have wondered how differently this might have played out had you not hit record on your tape recorder. Oh, yeah, of course. Like, I, you know... Everything that's happened is a result of, of me going to the media and because of this recording that I made. Otherwise, I would have gotten, you know, nothing from this. I would have just thought that there really was a, uh, some sort of formal complaint from a student who was offended, and I violated all these policies. And, of course, uh, it was admitted that I have violated no policies. Um, so... It's, you know, you, it's a total abuse of power. It's really unacceptable what they did. But the takeaway, a lot of people have said this, Lindsay, the takeaway from this, m maybe more than anything, is if you're in a position, you better record it. Because we've seen today, we've seen this month, what's happened if you record it versus, I don't even want to know what might have happened had you not recorded this. I, I, I'm willing to bet all the money that I have that the result would not have been the same. Oh, right, totally. And yeah, I did... Um, write a tweet saying that, you know, recording, you should record meetings um, if you're in a position like, uh, like I was. And even like one of the professors of the communication department at Laurier was like, 
oh, it's so dangerous how she's advocating for people to record things. Well, come on. I mean, like, you you put me in a situation where I, where I felt compelled to do that. That's kind of sad. But it's not even, I don't think that you just recorded it. I don't know that this result happens if it didn't come out publicly. Like, it's one thing to have the recording as a safety net for yourself, I suppose. But I, I really believe that this happened because whether you intended to or not, you embarrassed the university publicly. You got it out there and that recording embarrassed them. Again, I don't know that this happens if you don't do that. Yeah, I agree. Um, it's too bad that they had to be so fundamentally embarrassed in order to um, to realize, you know, the, you know, but the thing is, like, they don't, um, I don't think a lot of them realize the, the full profoundness of this situation. Like, there was, um, I don't know if you read the McLean's article uh, written yes. About, yes. about my situation. Yes, and so one of the former heads of the communication department also said that Professor Rambucana, so one of the professors in the recording, made a small mistake. But it's not a small mistake what what they did in that meeting. It's their entire ideology. It's their entire belief system. Um, So you can't reduce it to a small mistake, which is maybe comparing uh, Jordan Peterson to Hitler, right? I mean, it's, it's really, it reveals, the recording reveals how these people think. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Now, if you are a regular listener to this show, and I certainly hope you are, you will know that over the last number of years, on certain occasions, we have raised questions here about math in school, teaching math. Not questions about the teachers themselves, more about the philosophy behind what the teachers are being told to do. And most of it revolves around the method of teaching the subject, most of what we've talked about in the past, experiential math, rather than just knowing how to, knowing the answer, you're supposed to understand how to get to this with this, doing this and doing that and what some people would call the new math. Well, the other day, we talked about a different area of math in school. We talked about the fact that a number of female teachers who didn't take math in university and according to some studies, don't really feel all that comfortable with it, but are now elementary school teachers, so they're required to teach it to their students, are passing their anxieties about teaching math on to their mostly female students. Well, today we have a bigger question. I think this is the biggest question of any of the questions around math and frankly, other subjects in school as well. If a kid is struggling to handle the level of math or whatever else that they're in and they're not understanding it and they can't really do it, why are we pushing them through to the next grade and not holding them back to be able to do it over again and learn it so we build a foundation and be able then to go on and become better at what they're doing? There was a really interesting piece to this effect in the Hamilton Spectator today by my next guest, Linda Chenoweth, a former teacher who has been asking, obviously, the same question. She joins me now. Linda, thanks for doing this today. You're welcome, Scott. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, you brought this up, uh, referring to it, and I think yours is probably the far more uh, learned and erudite description of it. Uh, you call it the anti-retention philosophy as opposed to me just saying fail them. Um, yes, right. I have a problem with that. that And and I'm sure, I mean, it does sound very negative. I understand. So the anti-retention philosophy, but the idea basically is we don't want to keep kids back. We want to make sure they keep up with their friends and with their cohorts. Why is this happening? Why is this so important to some people? 
Um, because there came with the uh, back in the hall dentist report, having done my research, when they started looking at students as individuals, just not blocks of students and meeting individual student needs. And there was some studies done that, um, and rightfully so, that failing children causes them a lot of anxiety not to move on with their peers. However, um, as they often do in education, they throw out the baby with the bathwater. What also that the um, Hall Dennis report did say was that, uh, however, it, uh, if you move kids on and you don't have the proper supports to support them, there's no difference. That also, surely, if you are going to, and I will use the word fail, I don't mean fail a course, I mean fail to succeed at something. If uh-huh. you fail in front of your colleagues, is that not equally as detrimental? If you get asked to come up to the front of the class and do your math homework or do an answer on the board right. and you can't do it and you are just frozen, is that not equally as damaging to a student's psyche as holding them back for a year? Absolutely. I don't know that a teacher would ask a student anymore. Not like really? In my days to go up to the board, they don't really actually use They may use the smart board um, to do a question, but not a student who doesn't know how. What happens, though, is the students who don't know how are sitting there listening to lessons that they is, that are, is over their head, and so it is an absolute waste of their time because they haven't grasped the the earlier concepts in order to do that question. But it's so, to me anyway, it is so obviously misguided because if you don't have the foundation, you're just setting people up for failure maybe the next year, maybe the year after, but it's, it, it, it's so completely predictable. Ab- absolutely. I, I, I don't understand it at all, but uh, it's... it's uh, because with the um, philosophy not to um, hold kids back or promote them, um, we have what now is called age, what I call age-related grades. It's not based on you're not in grade two or grade three based on the curriculum. You're just in that age-related grade, and everybody is seven or everybody is eight years old. And so you're right. We've got students who are moved on with their peers, and they haven't mastered the curriculum, and there's no way that they're going to catch up. And just lest anyone think that I'm picking on people here, I do speak from some experience in this department, and it's not something I'm particularly proud of, but I failed grade nine math. My my dad, if he's listening, is probably cringing remembering those days. That was not a happy moment in the Radley household, but I did. And I had to go to summer school, and I had to do it over because if I didn't, I would have gone into grade 10 math, and it would have been even a bigger disaster, and so on. You have to be able to do that stuff to get a chance to be able to succeed down the road. Sometimes it hurts, but it has to happen. Absolutely, and I failed grade 10 math. So. <laughs> well, so we're in the same boat together. But, yeah, yeah, there you go. But that social discomfort, I mean, again, I had to spend part of a summer sitting in a classroom. I didn't really want to do it. But had that not happened, what would have happened down the road would have been far more damaging. Me losing part of a summer is better than me losing all of my high school in that department. Right, and I had to sit in a grade 10 math class with my brother because he was only uh, one year younger than I was. <laughs> it's a lot different, though, for uh, when you're talking, though, at the elementary level, at the primary level. And I know that um, it, it's not as hard to retain kids at the primary level. And um, We used to do it. We used to not promote kids um, when they couldn't. And the problem is, is that uh, it, it holds them back a whole grade. I mean, I have a whole other philosophy that... You can send kids on in other subjects um, with their peers. Why not stream them just for um, math and English, the important subjects, the core subjects, where you need to have the mastery of the basics 
before you could move on. They can be with their age-related peers in their phys ed classes, their music classes, their science classes, but let's stream them according to the level that they're at and not promote them until they get the basics. And Linda, I can't, I can't believe that at most schools, even smaller schools, I can't believe that there is only one in a class. So there are probably two or three or four, maybe more oh. that are struggling. So you're not going to be the only one who's doing your math again with the previous year. Exactly. And it wouldn't even, we, it wouldn't even be called the previous year if we called them levels in math and in, in, um, in the English, in language, we call it at the primary level. Um, that kids are at level, you're at level one, two, three, four. You do it in swimming. You, we do it in every other thing we do in, in life. We don't move kids on in swimming lessons. That is a great, that is a great point. We got to go to a commercial break here, but I was actually going to say it and you took the words out of my mouth. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Linda, the other thing about this that strikes me, it's unfair. It seems to me to be unfair to the kids, first of all. If they're not ready to go, we are putting them in a position where they will be penalized later if they can't get into school or if they can't get a good job. But it is also, to me, teachers who are paying a price for this. Uh, this is not. This segment is not a dump on teachers by any stretch. In fact, I think teachers are also part of the victims in this. Absolutely. The increase to teachers' workload now because we do not retain kids or stream them according to the level that they are working at, because I don't think it's really about failing. It's about staying where you need to be and not moving to the next level. And teachers' workloads are increased because teachers now are one-room schoolhouses, I call them, because there are kids you're going to have your top kids who are working above grade level. Let's take a grade three, for example. You've got kids who are going to be working at grade four, five, six, grade, those levels. And then you've got kids who are on IEPs who may be working at, some kids, even grade one in a grade three class. Right. And so let's put this into, into context then. I've got a teacher who's teaching grade nine. I'm a first year high school math teacher. And suddenly my kids show up for school. And as you say, there's a few that are outstanding students, but there's one or two or three who really don't really know what they're supposed to be doing or don't have that level. Well, I'm now going to be spending a chunk of my time, maybe a lot of my time, trying to just get those ones up to snuff. That causes the teacher to lose track. It hurts the smarter kids who now don't have the same attention. It, this, is a, this seems to me anyway that it would be a large problem for those teachers. Absolutely, because if you're a teacher which is a, a, like a 20 to 1 ratio, one teacher for approximately 20 kids. And then you've got, you're teaching to the majority of the class. You've got your math lesson. You've taught them the lesson. You've got the kids who that lesson is going to be above their head, but they sit there and listen. And then you've got the regular grade that you're teaching. You send them off to apply some skills, do some hands-on activity. And meanwhile, you've got the students who are not at this level. Sometimes they can do what that, the class is doing or you pair them up. But and often, though, they've got other things they have to do, maybe the same concept, but at a lower level. And so where's the one-on-one attention that they need, that those students need? It strikes me then, and I, maybe I'm oversimplifying this, but it strikes me that a big chunk of this is that we are worried about hurting the self-esteem of kids. And so we would rather, it seems on a balance, damage their academic side of things than their self-esteem side. I don't really know how to get around any other Ab- version absolutely, of this. Absolutely. It's all goes... Lo- 
hand in hand with, you know, handing out participation ribbons to everybody because we don't want anybody to feel bad. Uh, that kind of uh, uh, philosophy. And it, it's true, I think, that either way, the kids' self-esteem um, and there are, is, you know, affected and, and makes them very anxious whether you promote them and they're not with their peer, or, or sorry, if you retain them and they're not with their peers, or you rep- promote them and they don't understand what's going on in the classroom. The very cynical side of me, and I do have a cynical side at times, uh, it only occasionally shows itself, but it's there at times, um, is that there are some administrators and maybe some educational scientists who don't want to have to deal with the angry parents who have spent years telling their children that they are perfect and that everything they do is wonderful. And suddenly now the school is saying, no, that's really not the case. And mom and dad are not really happy about this. Seems to me that's my cynical side, that this is a way to not have to deal with those upset people and to deal with those difficult discussions. Um, I, I actually don't think so. I think it comes from the top, the, our, um, educational gurus so-called um who have who have um sit in their ivory towers and haven't been in a classroom in who knows how long to know what it's like in a classroom these days and it's changed enormously um and they philosophize theorize and use talk you know come up with ideologies which really aren't practical in an everyday classroom it is certainly a, um, well, here's the last thing that, that I, I thought about. This. Well, there's a lot of things, but here's one more thing I thought about this before we have to go. And unfortunately, we're squeezed for time. And that is, if you can be pushed through without mastering the stuff that you're supposed to know to do the next level, why do we have prerequisites for different classes in school? Why do I have to take grade 9, 10, and 11 French, for example, before I take grade 12 French, if they're going to pass me anyway? And if I can go in and not really know my French very well, I could just skip those and go right to grade 12 French. That, of course, makes no sense at all. How could you possibly do that? Well, is that not sort of what we're talking about here? If you can't do the math and now you're expected to do more math, it seems sort of silly. Absolutely. Totally agree. Um, that's that's what's happening. We're, we're moving kids on and um, the system is saying and those who have developed the, or determined the philosophy of the day of not... Um, retaining kids have said that we're going to put you on your own special program and the teacher is going to teach to that program. And if you do the math on that, it's impossible. Linda Chenoweth, you can read her piece. It's a really thought-provoking, interesting piece called EQAO, Students Fall Further and Further Behind. It's at thespec.com right now. Uh, Go look that one up, give it a read, and decide for yourself. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. When the Ottawa Senators are hosting their biggest game of the year, their biggest game maybe ever, the outdoor game on Saturday, 100th anniversary of the NHL, on the exact 100th day of the first game, interestingly also between Ottawa and Montreal, Eugene Melnick, the owner of the team, makes some comments that says, you know, if the fans don't show up, we're, I'm gonna, I may have to move this outfit. Do you blame him? Nope. Um, I don't blame him one bit. I'm surprised that they've had the success attendance-wise that they have for the last 25 years because they I've been to the building in Kanata. 
I was there with a uh, guy that used to coach Real McCoys, Lou Nistico, former Toronto Toro, was living in Ottawa, and uh, they did the radio announcements, and we drove out, and I'm going, where are we going? I thought we were going to Saskatoon. I mean, it's a long way. It's a long way. way from Everybody anywhere. Everybody builds their building downtown, and if they can, they build it near water. So you've got boardwalks, restaurants, and the whole thing. Um, I think we have a site in Hamilton that would suit that, where they were going to put the football stadium. But that's where that's where you build new stadiums. And uh, it's a long drive, and it's inconvenient, and I think people are getting tired of it. Everybody likes a winner. You've got to be basically the Toronto Maple Leafs and apparently the Edmonton Oilers to be unsuccessful and still fill your building. And they've been unsuccessful, and they're a long way out, and I'm not surprised. It's an interesting comment. But every other Canadian team, Don, sells tickets, sells a lot of tickets. Yep. I mean, the Vancouver Canucks, when they stink, they sell tickets. When Calgary stinks, they sell tickets. Yep. Uh, Montreal, interestingly, that's one of the more fickle fan bases. They won't buy tickets, or at least they won't show up when the team is losing. But They got over 20,000 seats. They're still selling 18,000. And every other bit of the Montreal Canadiens' financial picture is hunky-dory. So even if a yep. few people don't show up, it's not the end of the world. And I think they get more money for their tickets, which really I, matters. I just, uh, frankly, I got to be honest with you, I am, I am shocked that Ottawa struggles to put people in the building, period. I really am. In a Canadian market, I was talking to Bill Kelly early this morning, and it struck me as I was chatting with him that, you know, Tampa and Ottawa came into the NHL at the same time. They were co-expansion teams. What would have been the odds back then that you would have said, 25 years from now, the team that's down in the Florida Sun Belt is going to be one of the most successful franchises in the NHL, and the team in the capital of the country of hockey is struggling to make a go of it. That is the antithesis of what everyone would have predicted. Prediction-wise, yes. I was hoping they'd both fail dramatically because Ron Joyce should have had a, been an owner of an NHL team that's, 25 yes. years ago. No, he, that's absolutely. The only thing Ron Joyce had was money. And integrity. Integrity and a building to play in. The other two had neither. Well, the other two made up stories about their finances. Uh, they didn't have a building. You're right. They didn't have... Really anything. And, and so, yes, Ron Joyce was the one who actually told the truth, yeah. and it cost him, and it cost the city of Hamilton. Apparently but, John Ziegler and the NHL weren't interested in the truth at the time, but in any event, the teams, that, you're right. Uh, I don't think there's anybody that would have predicted that Tampa Bay would be, first of all, a Stanley Cup champion and the more successful franchise. And a perennial contender now, and well run, yeah. and bring more people into the building, I just look at the Ottawa thing and I, I, I think to myself, it, it's, I, I don't understand why it doesn't work. I mean, I kind of do because there's reasons with civil servants and everything else. But for that reason, uh, as, much as, it's, uh, as much as I want to dislike Eugene Melnick and his comments, because it's an easy thing to want to dislike another rich owner who decides if you don't do what I want, I'm taking my toy and leaving. I kind of get where he's coming from though. It's a bit of pressure on the city of Ottawa because he's trying to build downtown so you know he's going, it was time to shoot that thing across the uh, bow. But do you think he's serious? Um, I think if a really great opportunity came along, he'd, he'd move it. I mean, he's a very wealthy man. I mean, he's not rich. He has wealth. And that matters. But so does pride and integrity. He's been very successful at a lot of things he's done. And these guys want to 
be perceived as being very successful, and he has every right to, to, to want that. Uh, I might point out that there seems to be two teams in the National Hockey League where geography and location of the building has affected them dramatically. Phoenix is one, mm-hmm. which is a long drive from Phoenix, or Arizona they call it now, because it's not in Phoenix. And the Senators aren't in Ottawa. So there's two places that are failing at the gate, but they're also, you can't tie the location of the building into the um, lack of success on the ice. Now that said, the Ottawa Senators almost went to Stanley Cup Finals last year. And Don, let's this be honest. This year they're wetting the bed for some but, reason. But as much as your, your point is 100% accurate, I don't expect that people in Arizona who are not blessed with a hockey background are going to make an effort to go way into the boonies to watch a game. I do expect that in Ottawa. Even though it's a long drive, it's NHL hockey, and we're in Canada, and I just, maybe I'm naive, but I do expect that people would, look, if I, if I gave, if you were to give 10 of your friends a pair of tickets to go to the Leafs for their next home game. I have to sell my house to buy them. True enough, or, or give up a kidney or something to the black market. But if you had a pair of platinum tickets to go to the Leaf game, the next Leaf game, and you gave them to any of your friends... And it was going to take them two hours to drive into Toronto in rush hour, bumper to bumper all the way, and then pay 30 or $40 for parking and $20 for a beer, whatever it is now. <laughs> Every single one of them would take those tickets and deal with the pain to get there and the parking and everything else. Every single one of them. Yep. And it's a pain to get there from here, but everyone would do it. And I'm looking at Ottawa and I'm thinking, you could get to Canada in less time than it would take a Hamiltonian to get to the Air Canada Centre most days. It would cost you less overall than it would cost anyone around here to do it, and yet they don't want to do it. And that's the part I don't understand, and that's why, again, as much as I would love to be dumping all over Eugene Melnick as a greedy owner who's just trying to pillage the community, I kind of get where he's coming from. It should be better than this for him. He deserves better. The inter- the, the guy I want to have a beer with is um, Tom and Salmi who ran the Leafs and was right-hand man for the Leafs for a number of years, who last year was hired uh, to run the Ottawa Senators, and he's probably up there going, hmm, these seem to be, these tickets seem to be a little tougher to sell than the Leaf tickets. I'm not getting a lot of emails in Texas from buddies wanting to go to the Senators games. Well, they roped off 1,500 tickets, seats in the arena this year. They're not even selling 1,500 of the seats that are available. Well, and they're not doing that to try drive demand up. Right. They, they've just... And they still can't. They've said, uncle, we can't sell them. So why, that's not good in Canada. And I would hope that, and hope is an interesting terminology, somebody from Hamilton has said, uh, hey, we're here because now, me being the ever optimist that we can still get a franchise, all we need is a building because nobody has to pay... If 900 million Canadian, he already owns it. And if, if you, you can show him that he can fill the rink every night and all you have to do is help him build a building. If Eugene Melnick is going to move his team for real, he's going to Quebec City. They've got a brand new spanking new building. They'll give him anything he wants because they need to put something in there. It's sitting there waiting. It's a year old or a year and a half old. The only thing they use it for, I think, well, there's a junior team. I was going to say for the Quebec Pee Wee tournament. The Ramparts play there. Yeah, the Ramparts play there. But 
if he's going to go anywhere, he'll go to Quebec City because it's sitting right there for him. Doesn't matter. Hamilton's a better market. I understand that, but Hamilton also is the Toronto and Buffalo thing. You still have to possibly deal with. He'd be fine. They'd, they'd approve it. I think the NHL would rather be in Hamilton. I think the Leafs. Except I still think, Don, the one other thing is the NHL would rather, if you were ever going to put a team in the Toronto, greater Toronto area, the value for the expansion fee that would get split to all the owners is enormous. It might be a billion dollars. Whereas the value to a Quebec team might be five hundred million dollars or something. So we'll let the we'll let the team move to Quebec City. You know how crazy that sounds. I know, but we'll let the team we'll let a team that's in trouble move to Quebec City and fill that building. But we're gonna save if we're ever gonna do anything in Toronto, we're gonna save that for an expansion team because then we can just skin all the whoever the owner is gonna be. We'll take everything he's got. And then that'll be money for all the other owners. I don't see there ever being a day. You may be right. In fact, I'm sure you are right that they look at the Toronto market as a glorious haven that they could have down the road, but they're never going to let a team move there. They're never going to let a team move there. They'll let a team expand there, but they're not going to, they're not going to pass up the kind of money they could get by putting an expansion team here or in Toronto. I don't know if I've ever said this here or not, but I've certainly said it multiple times when I, uh, I charter with the Oilers about four years ago to their final two games, one in L.A. and one in Anaheim. So um, we left L.A., and one of the guys on the bus says, this is really going to annoy you because we're going to Anaheim. And it was a Sunday. It was a Saturday night game in L.A., and then we went to Anaheim right after the game. It may have been a Saturday afternoon game, which is irrelevant. It was uh, with no traffic, a 35-minute drive. I said, and we can't have a team in Hamilton. They've got two beside each other in L.A., which is not a hockey hotbed. Both buildings were sold out. Anaheim's a great market, but they're so close. And you say, how do they have two teams And Toronto doesn't have two teams? And I maintain the Leafs would much rather have a team in Hamilton than right in Toronto, a second team in Toronto. Again, I, I can't I, believe there isn't a second team in Toronto. I, I agree with you. It's the biggest I, I, hockey market in the world. I agree with you, but again, I, I stand by my point that I believe that if there's ever going to be another team put into the Southern Ontario market, it's not going to be a move, team that moves here because that benefits nobody but the one owner of that team. Whereas an expansion franchise yeah. with a $700, $800, 900000000000 billion price tag that's divided up 32 ways, everybody gets a nice little chunk of the pie that way. Well, yeah, but then you're going to have 33 teams, and how many are they going to have? I well, guess if no, they can I, keep selling them for $650 million U.S. Look, gonna, you can mock you Gary. Have a 75-team league. People soon. can mock Gary Bettman all they want, and we all love to do that, especially here in Hamilton. But if you're an NHL owner and you're now selling expansion teams for $600 million, when, how much did the, what did the, uh, that we're talking, we started talking about Ottawa? 50. 50 million. Yep. To 600, 650 million. You don't think that the owners are happy with Gary Bettman? And Ron Joyce had the fifth. He was the only guy that had the money. Well, it pays to lie, apparently. If you don't have, if you have the money, just tell them whatever you want. Tell them what they want to hear. Maybe not lie. Just I'm, stretch the truth. I'm sure when Tampa Bay got the, um, um, I've never met Phil Esposito, but I'd like to have a beer with him. I'm sure when they said, uh, we've awarded you a franchise, he walked out of the building and looked at his brother and said, now what are we going to do? <laughs> yeah, that's I right. mean, they played out of the Dome. They played out of the Cow Palace. Yep. Maybe we got to sell some of that 72 memorabilia. <laughs> wow, a lot of it. <laughs> You're listening.
listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Uh, before we get on with anything else, though, just a little piece of news that Don just came over during the break that I, I think I should mention because athletes get pooped on a lot for being whatever. They, they, you know, some athletes, it's not, you know, they're heroes to some people, but they also get a bad rep for behavior and everything. When someone does something so exceptional, I think it's worth pointing out, and that is um, Cole Hamels, who's a pitcher, pitched for Philadelphia, pitched for Texas. Cole Hamels was the guy who started game five against the Jays in the Jose Bautista bat flip game. Didn't last too long. Cole Hamels announced our major league, sorry, Camp Barnabas, which is a camp in southwest Missouri, has announced that Cole Hamels and his wife Heidi, who was a contestant on Survivor once upon a time, have donated their 32,000 square foot home and 100 acres of land to the camp for children with special needs and chronic illnesses. That is pretty remarkable. That was going to be, he says that was going to be their dream home, but they've decided to live in Texas. And they've got this enormous house and they were moved by the kids at the camp. And so they're donating a 32,000 square foot house with a hundred acres of land. Good for him. Good for Good him. For them. Right Good on. for them both. Absolutely. Uh, as I say, there's a lot of times when athletes get dumped on for bad behavior. So it's only appropriate that when someone does something that exceptional that, um. That is cool. Holy crap. Yeah. That's, I mean. That's a. Nice to have that kind of money. But look, if you have that kind of money and you do something like this, I don't think we should be pointing to that kind of money. They just did a lovely thing. So good for them. And he's rich. He doesn't have wealth. He's rich. He's rich. There's a difference. He hasn't got billions. But a lot of guys still don't give up that kind of, you know, that's a, that's 32, I mean, you're talking probably in the 25, 30, 40 million dollar range that they've just donated with this. So good for them. That's probably worth what your house is. Roughly. Roughly. Um. With the outdoor game that was played this weekend, the NHL announced that it had counted down its greatest moments in NHL history with the 100th anniversary. Greatest moments in NHL history. And I was thinking before I heard what the final, what the winner was, I had a few that came to mind. Mario Lemieux scoring five goals in a game in five different ways. Even strength, power play, shorthanded, penalty shot, and empty net was chosen the winner. Don, I'm sorry. That, there have to be 500 moments in the NHL that are better than Mario Lemieux. Just one of these was an empty net goal. What, it, what is wrong like, with these people? Be like scoring it on you. Honestly, like if you're going to, if you're really going to have, is Daryl Sittler's 10 points in a game not more impressive than five points, five goals in a game on five different ways? And one of them was a penalty shot, and he was Mario Lemieux. He's going to score that every time. And one of them was an empty net, so there wasn't any. And one of them was a power play. I just, I looked at this, and I was like, what is the NHL thinking? Again. Well, they're thinking it's never happened before. Uh, but okay. neither has anybody ever got 10 points, including Gretzky. How about 50 points in 39 games? Goals. 50 goals. Yeah, 50 goals in 39 games. How about 218 points in a season? How about, I mean, I think number two was Bobby Orr flying through the air after scoring the Stanley Cup winning goal. How about that one? Yeah, that was a real surprise that they beat St. Louis to win the Stanley Cup. Yeah, but Cup. still, but when you're talking about moments, that to me. That might be the greatest picture. But, but that makes it a moment. Yep. What, can you even, do you even remember Mario Lemieux's five goals in five ways game? I don't even know when it was. I don't know what year it was. I don't know who they played against. I don't know anything about it. 
And I like to think that, as I've said before, I like to think that I'm sort of on top of the world of sports, as do you. Do you know who it was against? No. No. I do remember George Armstrong's uh, empty net goal in 1967. And I would argue that that moment, that moment might be more significant and more memorable than Mary Lou because that locked up the Stanley Cup. I mean, I would argue that you could, you could make a va- very valid point, and I would make a point, that Uwe Krupp's double overtime Stanley Cup winning goal with the Colorado, Rock, Colorado Avalanche over the Florida Panthers in the year, remember when everyone threw the rats on the ice all yeah. the time? That goal was a more spectacular moment than Mario Lemieux's five goals in five different ways. I just, I, I don't, I'm struggling to understand that the NHL could have a 100th anniversary celebration and come up with the best moments, and this is what you come up with? It just, it's, it's nonsensical and stupid. I mean, that would be, this would be like, this would be like the NBA having their hundredth anniversary. And rather than having the image of Michael Jordan flying through the air or doing the double pump against Cleveland, I think it was, or Utah, whoever they beat in that game, whatever, that you choose, I don't know, Steve Kerr's three pointer to clinch the three point lead for the season. In 1999. I mean, like, honestly, who cares? I'm just going to mark you down as not happy with their decision. What? I just don't get it. I don't, no one's ever done that before. I know. Again. But there's a lot of things that no one's done. No one's ever scored. No, you know, what, what the was ten his 10 points. What was his name? Who was the Philadelphia Flyer and then he became a Colorado? The, the French guy who stopped a slap shot with his face and had all of his teeth knocked out in one shot. No one's ever done that before. Maybe let's make that the thing. I mean, there's so many things that you could have come up with that were a more impressive or memorable moment. I, I think Don Cherry would say the uh, Jonathan Bouchard fight might be up there. Well, what about, you know what? I would argue that the, uh, the St. Patrick's Day massacre between Quebec's, the, the Nordique and Montreal Canadiens, yeah. when they had that bench clearing brawl at the end of the first period and then it started again before the second, that was more memorable. <laughs> How about anything, I mean, literally anything that Wayne Gretzky did? Yeah, he could have, he, he could have had eight of the top 10. I, 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 I just, I, I, I didn't see it. So I don't understand, I don't understand the NHL. What was number two? Bobby Orr flying through the air. That's the second time you told me that. What was number three? I have no idea. I can't remember. And they, and here's the thing. This was voted upon, I guess, by somebody, but the 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 things were put out there for you to like this is things that the NHL or NHL.com or someone had put they picked forward. a bunch and said this would not even have been on my list if i had if i had a list of a thousand things this would not be on it she just doubled it, it was 500 well i know but like, it oh. just just shows you how how re- this would not be on my list of top 1000 memorable moments from the NHL maybe 997 it just squeaks in we got time for you. To I'm rec- not going to count them all down. <laughs> Recite them down. Yeah, well, it's Christmas week. <laughs> depending on how I the news, twelve then. The 12 depending days on of how Christmas. the news goes, we may be counting down all 999 <laughs> this week. So pray that something happens this week. Uh, no, I, I, I'm, I'm just completely baffled by this. I, and but I just, and not even baffled, not even upset so much. I just, the NHL so often seems to find ways to take really great ideas. And I talked about this last week with the outdoor games. Take a great idea and just squash it because they played too many outdoor games. And now I had a very good friend on the weekend 
who is a very big hockey fan, say, what, there was an outdoor game? Knew nothing about the fact that there was an outdoor game. Because they've played so many of them. Who can keep track anymore? Who cares? And yeah, they should have, this one should have been very special. And this, this, the most memorable, greatest moment in hockey. Why would you not come up with something, even if it's not truly the most memorable, but that has an image where you could sell a bunch of t-shirts or shirts or whatever. You silk screen the Bobby Orr flying through the air like the Michael Jordan flying to the basket with his legs apart, that kind of thing. Find something that you can do to really sell this league and find something that really, I don't know. I'm just, it's amazing to me that it happens time and again. Anyway, there's most memorable. Considering that two guys who are in this room who are big hockey fans and watch a lot of hockey can't even remember it. I, uh... And I'm assuming there's a lot of other people going, oh, I vaguely recall that happening. I, I know I know he did it. I don't I don't know the year and I don't know who he did it with. I do have that Bobby Orr picture at home, though, autographed, which is kind of cool. I had the opportunity to golf with Bobby Orr and gave him my business card and he sent along the picture. He, so is that right? He is, uh, I could tell you 10 stories, but he is one of the most outstanding athletes I've ever been associated with. And that's the only spent, you know, when you golf with somebody, you spend five hours with them, right? And you have dinner. What a, what an amazing man. Didn't drill him in the knee on your backswing? No, no. <laughs> Brian McFarland was in the group too, talking about stories. Yes. No, Brian, a, Brian is a wonderful man. Brian, of course, used to be with Hockey Night in Canada. Yeah. Great hockey historian. Um, Dad wrote the Hardy Boy books. He did. Yep. No, uh, Brian... Several years ago, donated all that stuff to McMaster Library. All of the uh, Frank, uh, Franklin W. Dixon. Is that what it is? Franklin W. D- Why? What's the, the Hardy association Boys? to uh, Mac? He didn't remember. write them all, but he was a ghostwriter. I can't remember, but he donated all the archives of his dad's Hardy Boy stuff to McMaster yeah. Library. Frank, Frank, Franklin W. Dixon. I think that's the name of it. I have to look it up. I didn't read them. They were too thick. I read them because there was a guy named Radley in them. One of the two books that I ever read who had a Radley in it. That and To Kill a Mockingbird. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. All right, let me give you, Don, what may be the most startling statistic I've seen in the last year. I, I, I heard this. I looked it up. I confirmed it. This, to me, is maybe the most stunning thing I have seen in a long, long time. Since December 13th of 2015, going back two full years now, Three Star Wars movies have been released. And the Cleveland Browns have won one game. <laughs> it, is, it is an amazing thing that the Cleveland Browns have won one game in the time that three Star Wars movies have been released. And I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, you know, there's got to be something almost laudable in a weird way about that because it's, it's hard to be really good. But it's equally hard, I would think, to be that bad for as a professional franchise. The chances that things would break your way occasionally, that one of your draft picks would pan out, that one of your guys would be better than you expected. Or it you to could be. win a second game. That you that a ball would bounce in your direction and you would get a lucky break. That it's almost as amazing, almost as impressive that they are as bad as they are than if they were. I'd only lost one game in that time. It really is amazing. One, one. 
one. No, I'm saying it, it's the fact that they've only won one yep. is almost as impressive a feat as if they had only lost oh, one I, in that time. Like it's yes. hard to be that bad for that long. Yeah, you can't you can't ha- you can't win that many games. So you're right. It's more difficult almost to lose that many. Again, and there's been a lot of a lot of bad football teams. I know, but in the they, last but they get better eventually. Years. They get better eventually. I mean, even the Buffalo Bills right Maybe now move again. are sitting in a playoff spot. Yes, they may not make it, but they're sitting in a playoff spot as of right now. I just I just couldn't believe when I looked this up that this team that a team could be this bad at a time when in three years. Yep. Well, two and a bit because the last they lost. They, when did they win their game? So they've so they're, they're winless this year. They lost one. They won one last year, and they lost their final five in 2015. So in the time that those three Star Wars movies have come out, they have won that's, one movie. But when you consider that's quite a run, the Ooh. NFL has a salary cap to try and make parity. Yep. They have a draft in which the worst team gets the best player, presumably, or the chance to draft the best player, and that's been Cleveland. How do you you've built teams? How do you possibly, with a staff, I mean, it's not just one dumb guy who's making all the choices. You've got a staff, you've got scouts, you've got different people who come in. How do you possibly stay that bad for that long? It's virtually impossible. It really is. I believe it. They, and the Cleveland fans, I'm sure on Cleveland Sports Radio, go on at nausea talking about the players that they had that are now starring with other teams because everybody starts piling on. I don't know how they're drawing. How are they drawing? Oh, it's Cleveland. They'll probably get people. Yeah. What else? You get? I mean, you go to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You've got a nice downtown now. Cleveland's become a pretty nice downtown, but the the Browns yeah, are. That's almost impossible to be that inept. It 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 really is. I, I mean, I, I thought this through and I thought, is it stupid to say that it's almost as hard to be this bad? And it's not because... <clears throat> Well, it's and and the length of time is 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 a different measure than hockey and basketball and baseball because they don't play as nearly as many. They only play once a week, but they've only won one. I mean, think back. Okay, I mean so by fluke, you've got to win two in nineteen. In what was it? Two thousand, two thousand one, when the Hamilton Tiger Cats won only one game, and that was in overtime against Saskatchewan. They could have gone winless. But they didn't stay that way. They got better, not massively better, but they got somewhat better, won a few more games the next year. Teams that Which was massively better. Well, yeah, but But you're right. They weren't awful forever. There are so many things forever. that happen in sports that can hurt you or that can bounce for you or bounce against you, that it's you're bound to have something go your way at some point. And they apparently never do. And again, they've had so many draft picks that all flame out. I mean, if you get drafted by Cleveland, that is essentially the kiss of death. You may think you're the greatest football player in the world, and everyone may have told you that. And if you get drafted by Cleveland, something is going to go askew, and you are going to forget how to play the game. Or you're going to get so badly injured that you can never walk again. Well, the good news is you're likely going to be able to play a few years because they don't have a lot of good players. No, so because even if they you're mediocre, you can play in the team. No, they'll they'll draft someone else to replace you, and then <laughs> and that guy won't be able to play, and you'll get shoved out. And I, it is it is remarkable to me. It just really is remarkable. And when I heard that thing about, I mean, how long does it take to make a Star Wars movie? 
it takes a lot. I mean, with all the special effects and everything else, I mean, you're, they're not, they're pumping them out, but not week to week. Seems like it. Where did you find that out? Uh, someone posted it and then I conf- I thought, there's no way that could be true. There's no way that could be true. And I went and looked and it is true. Wow. That's. <laughs> Maybe the next Star Wars movie should be about the Cleveland, have a Cleveland Browns guy, have one of those weird little people wearing a Cleveland Browns shirt. One of the aliens or the droids or whatever. Well, you got to think, it seems like the uh, Arizona Coyotes are walking around saying we're not the Cleveland Browns. No kidding. I mean, right? really, there's there's the part. If you really suck, you can put that on your shirt. There's the worst part, I think, if you're the Cleveland Browns. Every other team in every other sport can point at you and say, well, at least we're not the worst. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.